Hi, and welcome to episode eight of the Saxophone Academy podcast. Now, as you may have heard, we recently lost a legend in the saxophone world, Frederick Hemke. Dr. Hemke was professor of saxophone at Northwestern University for 50 years. And during that time, my co-host, Dr. Susan Fancher, earned three degrees with Dr. Hemke. And on this very special episode, Sue shares some of her memories, some of the lessons she learned, and the wisdom she gained from Dr. Hemke. I know you're going to enjoy it, and I have no doubt you'll gain a lot from hearing about her insight and her experience with this amazing saxophone legend. Yeah. It's hard to travel with a Barry sax. It is. Well it's, hard, well, it's getting harder with any saxophone these days. Yeah, it's true. Yeah. True enough. How's your week? My week's good. A bittersweet. Yeah. So I'm back from China, and it was a great trip, but the thing that was really very, very sad was learning about two hours before my recital oh. that my wonderful mentor, teacher, Frederick Hemke, had passed away yeah. suddenly. And it was yeah, unexpected. It was definitely unexpected. I mean, you know, he, he was, was in his 80s. 83. But yeah. So, but, you know, he had been with doing my very With my well. eating habits, I find making 83 <laughs> unexpected. But, I mean, it's unexpected. Yeah. He, was, he seemed like he was in great health. He was very yeah. active up until the point very that he passed. Very active. Yeah. And he's, he was supposed to teach this summer in Maine again, you oh. know, at the, the Fred Hemke Saxophone Institute. So, yeah. you know, they're making other plans for who will teach. It's still going to be a great a great saxophone course. So if you were planning to go to it, still go to it. It's going to be amazing. Oh, yeah. It'll be, you know, of course, bittersweet without him there. His presence will be sorely missed, obviously. So you had to perform just a couple hours before your mentor. Yeah, well, you know how it is. If you've got to perform, you just go on stage, you do what you have to do. But, you know, I just... At one point, I thought, oh, maybe I can dedicate part of this recital or the whole recital. And I thought, no, I can't do that because I won't make it through the recital if I right. do that. So I just went, played the recital. But I did an encore piece, which was Nessun Dorma oh, by Puccini with yeah. piano. And I did kind of tear up a little bit three quarters of the way through that piece because I started thinking about Fred and how, how much he loved to play just a great tune. Yeah. How important that was to him. More than anything, just give him a good melody. That's all he really wanted. Yeah. Despite his flashy technique. Oh, he had, yeah, yeah. which he had plenty of. Oh, my well, gosh. So, yeah. for, for the listeners that may not know, who, who was Fred Hemke? Oh, my goodness. So, Fred Hemke taught saxophone for 50 years. 50 years, yeah. 1962 to Holy 2012. Cow. Yeah, That's just crazy. crazy. And so, he was one of those iconic saxophone teachers, yep. taught at Northwestern University for decades. Yep. And was, you know, one of those like the big three we used to call them, with no offense to all the other amazing and great teachers out there. You know, it was Hemke, Sinta, and, and Rousseau. Eugene Rousseau. Those were the three. Well, it's fair to call them the big three because one, they were. They were all giant. <laughs> They're really tall. <laughs> they were just annoyingly tall. Yeah. And uh, <laughs> really, really tall. But yeah, yeah they're, they're monuments for, for pedagogy. Yeah, for the better part of the the 20th century, if yeah. not, I mean, really, most of the second half of the 20th century. Right. If you were, you know, a top high school saxophone student and you wanted to go to one of the best saxophone studios, those were like the big three where you applied. Right. Yeah. Yeah, there were three fantastic schools of music. Yeah, and yeah. Were great, they still are, Great actually. universities, yeah. yeah. Yeah, and great universities surrounding them, too. Yeah, yeah which I love. True. Isn't yeah. it great that you can go take great music lessons and then you study with a world-class philosophy professor? Yeah, that was and one of the real bonuses of going to those schools. Yeah. Yeah. So he taught at Northwestern for 50 years. Yeah. He was a concert saxophonist. Yeah. But he also taught a lot of great jazz saxophonists, didn't he? I think he did. David Sanborn, for mm-hmm. example, I think took lessons with Fred Hemke. Yeah. Um, I have some kind of funny stories about Fred and jazz because, of course, you know, Fred grew up studying 
jazz and classical and playing in big bands and, you know, gigging and stuff like that. But for a long time, I wouldn't go so far as to say he was anti-jazz, but he was very pro trying to establish the saxophone as a serious concert instrument. Sure. Well, jazz was doing fine. Jazz was doing fine. It didn't need his support. (laughs) Exactly. And so it was thought for a while that if you studied with him, you'd better be careful about playing jazz and you maybe shouldn't tell him about it or, you know, make sure that you didn't let it get in the way of your classical playing. Sure. And, you know, I do have some some stories about that um, that I can share Mm -hmm. either now or later, depending on how you want to structure things here today. It's a little different than our usual show. Right. Well, I just want to give listeners a feel for who he was and then get your take because you studied with him for for how long? Well, I was wondering if I I maybe get the prize for the the student who studied with him the most years because I did my undergrad at Northwestern, but I did a five year program because I did a double degree program. And then I went, your second degree was mathematics, of course, because math is cool. It is cool. That makes me feel very <laughs> insecure around you. Oh man, I can't do math anymore. I you know I try to help my daughter with high school math, and I'm like, uh, you better ask the teacher. I have That's no idea. new math now. <laughs> I don't know. I think it's forgotten math in my case. Yeah. <laughs> But then I went back for my grad work and did a master's and doctorate with Fred Hemke. So that was three more years of lessons. So I needed eight years of lessons and it still probably wasn't enough. Oh, <laughs> so you you did three degrees. I did. Now, you also had a short stop over at um, the... the um Oh, with Londex. Oh, yeah. The, over the Conservatory in Bordeaux. In yeah, Bordeaux. I spent a year there after my undergrad. Right. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. And then yeah, you went yeah. right back to, to Hemke? No, then... I had some years off, actually. Ooh. Yeah. Yeah, I took some years off. I was pursuing a grad degree in math for a while, but I quit that to go play in Stockholm with the Rolling Phones. So you were getting a math degree. And where was that, Sue? Northwestern. Yeah. Yeah. So you studied math at Northwestern, too. I did. And you have degrees in mathematics, which is just... The undergrad, the the master's I bailed out, out on to go be a gigging saxophone That's player. That's awesome. I guess. <laughs> no, full stop. It's, it's kind awesome. Of unbelievable. <laughs> it's the dream. I yeah. guess, yeah. It was fun. Oh, cool. I don't have any regrets about so it. So you studied with him for a lot of years. Yeah, eight years of, of saxophone lessons with him. So you'd think yeah. I'd be okay by now. <laughs> yeah. Well, I think a lot of students, I mean, may have a slight idea, but we know him most for the people that haven't studied with him is you walk into a music store and you see Hemke Reeds. Hemke Reeds. And that is yeah, designed and, yeah. and... Oh, there's some funny stories with, about Fred that. By Fred Hemke. Uh, I was in a lesson one time and we had this lesson partner system. So two students would have a lesson at the same time with uh-huh. Fred Hemke. So during the years that I studied with him anyway, I mean, earlier he started out in the quote unquote normal way where you'd have a lesson by yourself with the yeah. teacher, like is normal. And at some point... I don't know if he just got tired of teaching so many hours or <laughs> if he got tired of listening to unprepared lessons or yeah. I don't know what what it was. But at some point he decided to go to go to a lesson partner system where an older student would be paired with a younger student. And so one week it would be your turn to play. Yeah. And then if there was extra time, the other person would play too. So you had to be ready just in case every week. And then the other, you know, the next week it would be the other person's turn to go first. And if he didn't like the way they were sounding or if they were unprepared, you'd tell them to sit down and the other person would get up and, and play. So anyway, um, there was one day, I can't remember who my lesson partner was, um, you know, they weren't sounding great. And, and Fred Hemke said to them, said to them, well, you know, that, that reads terrible. That's a terrible read. And the person <laughs> responded, well, it doesn't have my name on the back <gasps> of it. <laughs> oh. And of course, Hemke cracked up. Yeah. I mean, he had a great sense of humor. 
Oh, I but love isn't that great? It doesn't have my name on it. I think probably <laughs> when he insulted great. the Reed, he had to have an inkling of an idea. <laughs> he knew there was that a was chance a, that his he name. He knew it was a possibility, of course. That'd be horrible thing. Oh, this Reed's terrible. Oh, there's literally my name on the back of it. <laughs> right. But the Hemke Reeds are great. He always gave me a hard time because I never did switch from Van Doren to Hemke. I tried them. And the thing that's great about them is if if they play well for you and if you like them, yeah. they are very consistent as far as reeds go. Oh, sure. Yeah, and they do have a little bit brighter sound. So, mm-hmm. you know, if you like that and that's your thing. I mean, he sounded amazing on them, let's what? just say. No, he did. <laughs> and a amazing. lot of people do, which is yeah. I was really surprised by the number of jazz players. I was just thinking of that. Love yeah. Hemke Reeds. It's their yeah. absolute favorite. I think Branford Marcellus plays on Hemke Reeds. I wouldn't be surprised. He came to do a master class once at Northwestern. I think it was during, might have been during my grad years. I can't really remember. And Hemke asked him from the audience, hey, what kind of reed are you playing? And with no expectation at all that he'd be playing on a Hemke reed. And he said, well, I play on Hemke reeds, of course. Yeah. And Hemke's like, you're kidding. <laughs> that was awesome. They're great reeds. Yeah. <laughs> they and- are. And yeah, a lot of jazz players, especially. Well, I mean, there's great like, classical players that play. Sure, but yeah. Really was a huge hit with the jazz community as well. Yeah, that's um, great to know. I'll bet Hemke was thrilled with that in kind of a funny way. Yeah, they're slightly brighter, <laughs> but in, on the jazz side, they just feel kind of free. Yeah. Uh, I really like them. Yeah. They're great. And so I think a lot of people know the name Hemke from the Reeds, but there's also yeah. your teacher. So you studied with him for a lot of years. I did. He had an amazing career. We oh should, my God! We, he played all over the world. He commissioned music. I played I mean, with the Chicago Symphony, didn't oh, he? Oh yeah, absolutely, yeah. yeah. And before we delve into like what you learned from him and some of yeah. your personal stories, another really interesting thing about him was he uh, enjoyed woodworking. Yes, and that had a consequence. Oh boy, yeah. Can you tell us that? because was, this, I think that was during the years I was doing grad work. I went in for a lesson, and he held up his hand and said. Or maybe it was during the summer. I can't remember. But anyway, was walked into his studio to say hi. And um, he held up his hand and said, look what happened to me. And like part of his middle finger was yep. missing. And, you know, at first you think he's fooling around. You think this is some kind of weird joke. He's like holding his finger down or doing something yeah, yeah. goofy. And you're like, oh, what happened? And then he, he described that he had cut off the end of his finger using this machine that is called, I believe, a jointer. But he was it was cold weather, so it must have been in the winter mm-hmm. um, during the school year. It was cold weather, so he was wearing a glove. And he said it was the stupidest thing. You never wear a glove Big when no, you're... no, no. Apparently. Now, I say that like I didn't know I that. don't know even yeah. what the machine is, but woodworking people we'll or anybody who wants to, who has access to Google will look it up and yeah. see what a jointer is. And, and yeah, I cut off the end of his finger. So Selmer made a modified key for his saxophone so he could yeah. play. But I mean, he had a lot of pain in that finger for a long time, several surgeries to, right. to take care of it. But boy, he played a lot after yeah. that for years. <laughs> I remember right after it happened, there was a, it was actually, was it in, in uh, Evanston, the, the North American Saxophone Conference? Probably. Very yeah. shortly right after it happened. Well, I'll bet you're right. Yeah, because that the, was during my grad years. Yeah, and he you're opened, right. Uh, he gave the opening remarks and walked yeah. on the stage and he, and he said, I have no regrets that I can't play with all of you. I'm excited to be here. My only regret is I can't make the appropriate hand gestures in Chicago traffic. And he <laughs> hand is held up as if to give the bird. Oh, but God. But the middle so finger funny. was on par with the other. And it was just, <laughs> I thought like, that's a guy with a great sense of yeah, humor. Yeah, totally. That, yeah, there you have it. That yeah. just That says it all. Yeah. <laughs> So what were some of the things you learned? Some, oh, I, I imagine you've had some, you've had some time to, start? to oh, reflect in the past yeah, couple of weeks. Yeah, you know, you know, I was telling you, I just, I was just 
jotting down some ideas of different things I'd love to share with the audience. And I came up with like three pages of things, you know, I started out, I, I first learned of him when I was applying for college because mm-hmm. of that Cinta Russo Hemke. Um, so my, my saxophone teacher in high school said, you have to apply to those three. Cause those are the top three. And then you should apply. Cause I was from New York state. Um, SUNY Potsdam, where um, Jim Stolte was teaching. Okay. He was an excellent saxophone teacher. And also, Lawrence Wyman was the teacher at Fredonia. And my saxophone teacher in high school had studied this, the Rasher School of Saxophone okay. with Lawrence Wyman. So he said, you should go audition with my teacher, too. So where those was, were the five where schools. where was Lawrence Wyman teaching? He's at Fredonia. Fredonia. Yeah, which is okay. pretty close to Buffalo, about yeah. an hour from Buffalo. So I just auditioned at all those places. Well, my parents looked at the price tag on Northwestern <laughs> and said, there's no... There's no reason to even apply there, Sue. We're terribly sorry, but there's no way we could send send you there. And I said, well, my teacher says I should apply to these five schools. Yeah. You know, And I begged my father to plunk down the probably $50 at that point for the application fee, which today would be nothing. But at that time, you know, it's an extra right. 50 bucks on top of these other four schools. And I sent a cassette tape. I think I told this story once on this show. I sent a cassette tape to audition. We didn't bother going there because I wasn't going to get to go there because... It's too far away because, you know, Chicago from this little town of Albion, New York, where I came from, is a long way. And it is one of the most expensive universities in America. It's incredibly expensive. And so I got accepted to all those schools. Um, I had my heart set on going to study at the University of Michigan with Donald Center because I just fell in love with him when I was auditioning. I just thought, oh, my God, I I connected with him. I want to study with this guy. But since I was out of state, University of Michigan was very expensive. Sure. And then um, same story with Indiana. It was very expensive. And the, the inside story about Indiana is that if anybody from Indiana is listening, my mother was not impressed with Indiana University because of the foul graffiti she saw on the practice room walls. Well, of course, that's everywhere, but never mind. Yeah. <laughs> She's like, I'm not sending my little girl off to this place. <laughs> <laughs> So clean up your graffiti if it's yeah. on your walls during audition time, all schools. Graffiti and <laughs> other things. Yeah, exactly. I've studied some schools where they needed a hazmat team to go in there. Yeah, and, maybe that too, yeah. yeah. But you know, the acceptance letter came from Northwestern with a really hefty um, financial aid packet because they have a need-blind acceptance policy and 100% of financial need, while well, they determine how much your family right. can afford from your FAFSA, and then they just give you a scholarship for the rest. Oh, wow. That's how it worked at that time anyway. Yeah. So I'm, I think my dad just about fell off his chair when he saw that. He's like, well, I guess you're going there. Yeah. And I, you know, I kind of cried a little bit because I really wanted to go to, to Michigan, but I, we just couldn't afford that. So I went, I hadn't even met Hemke. You know, here I am accepted to go study. You know, all I've done is send, send a tape. So I get on a train by myself, you know, age 17, little country bumpkin kid. and I'm picturing I, with a, naps, a knapsack and pigtails. <clears throat> is that accurate? Uh, I don't know about the pigtails. I did have long hair, so okay. <laughs> probably a but ponytail. But certainly a knapsack on the end of a <laughs> but stick. Yeah, you know. a saxophone in a suitcase, you yeah. know, and, and uh, got on a train oh. in the middle of the night in Buffalo, New York, or maybe Rochester. I lived halfway between yeah. those two cities. And got on a train to Chicago, went to downtown Chicago all by myself, age oh, 17. Geez. I know, right? That's awesome. Found my way to Evanston and then met this man who's like 25 feet tall. Yep. <laughs> The best name I heard from him was Amish the Giant. Oh, my God. Super gregarious, yeah. super lively, and, 
you know, gave me a big old hug, a real hug, not the the Hemke hug, which is the reach around the saxophone, yeah. play the keys while you blow into it, but big old hug and offered me a cup of coffee. I think at 17, nobody had actually offered me a cup of coffee besides <laughs> my mother. <laughs> so it was like, oh, coffee. Yeah. Is that something people do? Sure. 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 I'll have a cup of coffee, <laughs> you know, and just sat and chatted with him a little bit and, you know, played a little bit and it was just great to meet him. Aww. And so I was super excited to go there. Oh, that's yeah. awesome. So that's my meeting Fred Hemke. Story. Yeah. So what are some of the big <laughs> lessons that you learned well, from him? I know I imagine there's countless. <laughs> oh, there's countless. But, you know, I, I just want to tell you about my first lesson. So I was talking to some of the other students the week before my first saxophone lesson with Fred Hemke. And uh, one of the grad students who I shall not say the name of, that person shall remain nameless, gave me some horrible advice. Horrible, horrible advice. I said, oh, I wonder what I should have prepared to play for my first lesson. You know, we had just had the wind ensemble audition, right. so I had that music, but he wasn't going to want to listen to that, right? I yeah. Mean, he had just listened to that probably 20 times. Yeah. Um, so this guy said, oh, don't worry about it. He'll just give you, he'll assign stuff. Don't worry about being prepared to play anything. This was really bad advice, and I was dumb enough to think that, oh, okay. So I go to my first lesson, and Fred Hemke says, well, what do you got to play? I'm like, uh... Yeah, this did not go over very well, you, so I did, did you, not start out very well. Did you throw Larry, the grad student, under the bus? Or? No, I didn't, of course, because I'm not that kind of person. I just did, never occurred to me to say, well, so-and-so said I should just wait and you would assign something. No, Sue, that's exactly what you should have done. I but, know. Yeah. Well, first of all, I yeah. should have practiced my butt off <laughs> and had something ready to Don't play. Don't take responsibility. <laughs> and if I didn't, I should yeah. have said, well, so-and-so said that I should just come and you would just assign stuff the first lesson. Yeah. So anybody out there, when you go to your first lesson at college or with any teacher, don't just expect to go and start from zero. They want you to come and play something because you don't give them much to work with if you don't come right. and play something. So don't do what I did. <laughs> yeah, you don't go to the mechanic and like, I need what's wrong with my car. Where's your oh car? I didn't bring it. <laughs> yeah, right. Here, can you just I can tell you about it. <laughs> That's uh, 20, 2014 <laughs> Civic. It's very nice. <laughs> That's a great analogy. Yeah. Well, one thing I wanna I want to share is that Hemke, I don't know what he did. But he had a pretty close to 50-50 balance between men and women in his saxophone studio. Maybe it was 60-40, so 60% guys and 40% and gals. But he either made a really concerted effort or word had gotten around that it was a safe place to study. I don't know, but the class I went to school with, it was 50% women and 50% men. The next class was about the same. Um, I, I have the, to believe that was a, a conscious decision on his I part. I guess so. But, you know, the thing is that you hear, you know, people say things today like, well, you know, we don't have very many women in our class here, but, you know, we don't think it's fair to accept them if they can't keep up. It doesn't do them any favors. I got to say, the women at Northwestern when I was studying were not having any trouble keeping up. In fact, oh, some geez. of them were some of the best players there. So I'm a little baffled as to why it's become so hard in certain uh, schools which shall remain nameless to have even even 25 75 would be an improvement on some of the situations we have now yeah oh, sorry I just, over your shoulders a yeah. bird there's a bird okay it's just a bird it's a plane i'm a little no. <laughs> I'm, a, I'm a little on edge the stu our studio is um in in the, the bottom floor of my house 
overlooking a beautiful backyard. It's, it's lovely. Uh, only the only problem is the past couple of weeks, this is a very small diversion, but my heart stopped for a second. It was a bird head popping up. I have giant snakes. I have been looking at that on Facebook, Wally. I've are, been watching your Facebook and feed. Are, and you have really, really big snakes in this yard. They're giant. And they were, and where I took the picture is about a foot from your head outside that window. So when I'm I saw something. Window, and when I the saw something. there and it's yeah. closed. <laughs> well, when I saw it, was just a bird. So I'm going to get back on track. But for well, a minute, your heart? Oh, you okay? So I'm okay. I'm yeah, okay. but it's it's funny because you know moving to North Carolina from like upstate New York. Yeah, I've had to face the reality of snakes here. Yeah, that we I mean we have snakes up there, but you know these little bitty brown garden snakes. So mm, here, yeah. a couple years ago, we found a copperhead in our backyard, uh, and it was like you know four feet from our daughter who was standing there in bare feet. And Mark's oh, like, no. oh my god, get inside! <laughs> yeah, it's horrifying. We live yeah. in. Uh, moved to North Carolina, come, come live in Greensboro. It's great. It's we, great. But we do have giant snakes, <laughs> and there's tons of them. My, my, my whole yard is lousy with them. But apparently that's good, except for terrifying if you're not a Yeah, snake aside person. from the heart attack and changing my pants regularly, it's awful. <laughs> Sorry to get off track, but no, that's, that's behind your head, life, it was man. simply a bird head poking up. For a minute, I thought it was Harold, the giant snake. I saw you turn like some shade of white. Oh. I was like, what is going I thought, on? I can't, I can't record a podcast with a giant snake coming oh, up the window, but it was just a small bird. Um, what did I learn? Oh my God, what did I not learn? So, okay, everybody knows that Hemke's ba- has great technique. Oh yeah. And, and he, you know, made all of his students play scales with metronome every single lesson. Cool. Maybe I didn't do that so much when I was a grad student, but when I was an undergrad, first thing that happened when you walked into a studio, what's the tempo? Put on one of those box yep. metronomes with a little flashing light on the top. And it plugs in. It's yeah. Like, it's not and even it's batteries. Loud. It's like, yep. It's loud. And yeah. you put it on and you would just hit the ground running with your scales with the metronome and the goal was 152 in 16th notes and everybody had to do it it didn't matter if you were performance or music ed you had to do it it was the hazing process you went you went through and him doing that made it so you had to practice your scales because you were going to have to play them in the lesson and i to this day spend lesson time i hate it it's boring to be quite frank but I spend lesson time listening to scales because if I don't spend valuable lesson time on it, they don't think it's important and they don't practice their skills. What a great pedagogical point. If yeah. you show the student something's important, you dedicate time in a lesson. Yeah. Otherwise, it's just lip service. Yeah. Even if it's sometimes it's just five minutes and sometimes if it's been weeks and they just don't practice their scales, I will make them just grind through every scale if it takes half the lesson, and oh well, you missed half a lesson because you didn't practice your good scales. Good for you. And it's brutal for me too. I don't yeah. like to listen to scales, especially when they're not good. But you know, my best students will come in, it's less than five minutes, they'll play through all their scales with whatever tempo we decided on for that week, and then it's up a click or two for the next week. You get to 152, <laughs> your reward is you get to learn the next scales. But you can be without metronome for a week or two maybe. So you right. finish your majors diatonic majors, then you do your harmonic minors. You go back to diatonic majors, but you do them in thirds. Mm -hmm. You go back to harmonic minors, you do them in thirds, fourths, fifths, sixths. Hemke would have you do all the way up to octaves. I never got past sixths, but... At 152? Yeah. Yikes. Right. And so the thing is, if you can play those bigger intervals, even thirds or fourths, even fifths, if you can play those at 152 and get the notes to speak, then you're playing with an oral cavity in the right shape 
and position that the horn will just work when you blow into it and you don't have to shift around. Right. So he's teaching you technique. He's teaching you to blow into the horn because to do those things, he never made you play them piano. You just played them full out. Yeah. Think about all the other instruments who were practicing around us in the practice rooms. And hearing sex was playing they will scales and fifths at 152. Hate them. They're so loud. Yeah. They're so loud. And I just felt sorry for anybody practicing in rooms next to us. And there were a lot of us and we practiced. Yeah. So it was brutal. That will install a bit of work ethic having that kind of... Yeah, because uh, you can't fake it, right? Yeah. You can't fake it. And so yeah, yeah. sometimes it would take an hour a day to get those scales to where he wanted them the next week. And he was disappointed and visibly so if you didn't make it. He assigned two to three etudes every single week. And they were meant to be played at the, or as close to as you could get it, at the tempo that was on those etudes. And you know, some of those tempos are ridiculous. Yeah. But he didn't say they were really, I tell my students, oh, that's ridiculous. You don't have to go that fast because I don't want them to be discouraged and I want them to keep moving. But he, he had students at the level where you could say, okay, it says 126. You're going to play that at 126. Right. So you just do it at that tempo. And we've talked about this before. If the etudes weren't absolutely gorgeous, right? he, he would just pass them if you were pretty close. Right. Because the idea was to learn something hard in a week. And right. he would assign, I'm serious, three, two fairlings and, you know, one of those mule cinquantois. Oh, yeah. Every single week. So you had to practice because he gave you a lot of stuff. And then we would get to the repertoire. And the idea with the repertoire was you would learn fewer pieces over the course of a semester or in that it was quarters at Northwestern. Right. And you would pass them once you had played them with piano and sometimes he would require you to memorize a, a movement. He was a little less adamant about that when I was a student. He probably was, he had a lot of students when I was there. Sure. I mean, there was always like 20 to 25 students. It was a big, yeah. big saxophone class. And, uh, you know, he probably should have been more adamant about the memorization, but we probably all like fought him on it. So he just was like, well, pfft, too much trouble. But, right. but that was that philosophy that I still keep in my teaching, you know, scales and etudes and repertoire and the same thing. The scales are your building block. I do have my students do them with articulation, not just slurred yeah. more than, than he did. But his idea with just having you slur them was just to, just to blow into that saxophone and, and all of his students had a good sound. There was nobody there with a bad sound. Yeah. And that's something that actually um, Mark Engerbretson was telling me that this morning, that when he went to do his grad work at Northwestern, the thing that blew him away was how everybody sounded great. Yeah. And it was just because Hemke talked a lot about vibrato. He he used to teach it in the way of um, like opera singers, where it's, uh, it's always present, always part, part of the sound. Right. More right. than something you add to. Um, as an expressive tool, but really part of the sound. He taught less like that later on. He was more um, into using vibrato as an expressive tool and right. more do, you know, with the modern well, music, he, it made more sense to do straight tone stuff. And he studied with Mule. He was yeah. the first American to win the... He um, was the first American to win the, the Premier Prix from the Paris Conservatory with, with Marcel, Marcel Mule. Mule. Yeah, and Desenclos was the competition piece. I knew that, yeah. and that's very cool. It is um, cool. Which is, I guess, maybe explain his early ideas of, of vibrato because Mule was very much right. this is the sound. This is the sound this of the saxophone. This is the speed song. of the vibrato, yep. and this is what's happening. Yep, yep. Um, and so Hamke came from that, that yeah. French school of playing, and I admire him greatly for being able to change his teaching and his thoughts and evolve as a musician. Yeah. In you know, in I would say later years, but really, I'm talking the last twenty or thirty years of his life, he was able to really make that change, which is not easy. No, and. Huge props to him for that. That's right. Not only not easy just to do, but also to have the 
self-awareness to yeah. change your ways. And the lack of ego. Yeah. To not just hold on to what you've been teaching for, you know, at that point already 30 That's years. Big. Not That's a lot big. Of, not a lot of people do that. No. Yeah. No. That's so that really was huge. Cool. The, you know, the idea of music as a way of communicating with people was absolutely essential to his way of teaching. Um, the idea of um, the importance of the melodic line, no matter how strange the music. And it's interesting when I get reviews on performances of contemporary music, the thing that pleases me so much is when somebody notices that no matter how weird the music is, I am trying my darndest to make it communicate and find some way to find a, a melodic line and make it sound melodic, right. even if it's just bizarre beyond belief. <laughs> and right. that's from Hemke. Oh, that, that philosophy of, yeah. Yeah, that everything, it should communicate. You're not just up there putting on a show and, hey, thumping your chest, look at me, I'm so awesome. Right. It's about connection with an audience, always. I love that. Isn't that and just I think that's what attracted awesome. me to your playing, oh. um, is I always feel you're communicating the music, not it's the Susan Fancher show. Oh, and there, thank you And there's for some that. dynamite performers in our, in our field that yeah, amen. and they get up there and they play and I feel okay there's they're playing the music but I feel it's more serving them their technique yeah. and showing what they can do that can happen yeah um yeah and a lot of our music encourages that cuz it's so virtuosic it's so difficult but you know yeah, yeah. it, it becomes tr- more about how impressive the player that is, is a trend because it seems is. like in order to when you commission new work you know, it's like yeah. well is it hard no we'll make it hard yeah right um, and composers will tell you that performers tell them oh could you make that harder or you uh-huh. could write more altissimo there oh that could be faster or you don't have to you don't have to you know play that like that you could do you could it, it's hard like this but you could do that yeah and well, oh, bernhard man. haydn tells <laughs> the story of you know wrote the bernhard haydn sonata what was yeah. it 1930 yeah, or, between the wars, right? Yeah, yeah. Um, 1930s, the Sonata, and he wrote it, and he brought it to Sigurd Rascher and said, oh. you know, and presented it. This is um, Haydn telling the story to one of my former teachers who yeah. heard the story from Bernhard Haydn. Um, Bernhard Haydn was at one of my professor's recital playing the Haydn Sonata. And he said he gave it to Sigurd Rascher and said, oh, Mr. Rascher, I've written the Sonata. I would love if you take a look. And Sigurd Rascher looked at it and said, is all octave too low? And right. meaning there was nothing to showcase his. Uh, now this is not a knock on Sigurd Rascher. No, he did of course tons not. Tons for the instrument, and oh he my was gosh. fantastic musician. But it was that kind of you know that what you know there was a certain virtuosity and showmanship. Well, and he was championing that altissimo range, sure. right? And so he wanted people to write music that included it because yeah. his concept was. We need a bigger range on the saxophone. Yeah. He to- totally was right and about he, that. Well, and he did. He did amazing. And yeah. Thank goodness. You know, so the thing that was interesting is Marcel Mule really resisted that, yeah. right? He resisted those awful, squeaky, horrible high notes. And it what's really interesting is Hemke embraced that. So yeah. when I was a student there, you know, you had to do your quote unquote squeaker scales. <laughs> your altissimo scales he would have you do either three octave scales or just the octave into the yeah. altissimo and that was something that he encouraged now back in that day we didn't do a lot with slap tongue that wasn't a technique that was common at that point right even though i mean if you listen to some of that old rudy Weedolf and hemke recordings they did slap tongue right but somehow that wasn't something that hemke taught and we didn't do circular breathing back in in that day when i was studying yeah. Which is kind of something that basically everybody has to learn how to do now. So I'm sorry for you youngsters. Yeah, yeah I know. I still resist it because well, uh, I, it's just so hard. And I find so little use for it in the music that I well, play. Yeah, there are some 
colleges where if you want to study there, you have to learn. You have to learn all these what used to be called extended techniques: slap tongue, multiphonics, altissimo, circular breathing, yada yada yada. Yeah. And now they've made a big push to just call them techniques. It's what right. we do. Yeah. I'm it's part of saxophone playing. I, f- yeah. uh, I feel differently about that. I know. I think it's a very narrow path that says you have to do that. Yeah, I think um, if you want to do that, that's fine. But it, to say that you have to do that to study at a particular school, right. well, you know, it just means the people at that particular school exactly. use those techniques, yeah. and that's okay. I, yeah, absolutely. But I, I, I don't yeah. like the idea that this is what we all have to be doing. Yeah. 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 We could have more than one path. We could have more than one path. But it's interesting. Sometimes when I say that, I always think back to, you know, the fact that some saxophonists really resisted the altissimo range. But I have to say, you know, the altissimo range ain't awesome all the time either. <laughs> so- what? <laughs> We talking about? I got angels singing in my studio. Well, I told three hours you. A day. I told you that. Yeah. Well, that's funny that you say that because you know that really high passage in the Zanaka saxophone quartet. I know of it. I've never played it. Oh, but yes. I have to bring a recording of that for you. When when the Vienna saxophone quartet, when I was in it, we played yeah. in Paris and we played the Zanakis in this huge like atrium room. And this woman came up to us afterwards and said that high part sounded like the angels singing. So it was funny. Like, what religion gorgeous. was she? <laughs> it's a gorgeous section. So, yeah. but but see, here's the thing: you get to play really loud. Yeah. And if a note cracks or if something happens, it's not perfect. It's still not. It's still not going to ruin the piece. Yeah. But if you try to play the second movement, is it the slow? Is that the second movement? Is it? Is that the slow movement of the American Quartet by Dvorak? Oh. That there's transcriptions of that that go up They'll to the altissimo D in the in the soprano. If you try to play that super soft and you miss it yeah. oh horrible then you just cough or the arrangement of the sam the barber uh, adagio for strings that i heard that goes way 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 i up. haven't heard that it plays in the original range of the strings oh my and we heard a performance of it i won't tell you who did it uh and they crashed and burned in the high stuff and <laughs> you know that piece is like got to be one of everybody's favorite pieces in the world. Everyone knows it. Yeah, and everybody knows it. And so that's painful when it doesn't work. Yeah, (laughs) that is one of the benefits of premiering new music. It can crash and burn, and people are like, oh, that's very interesting. Yeah. Yeah, I totally nailed that. Yeah, right. (laughs) So what else did you learn from him, Keith? What are some other takeaways? Oh, gosh. So a lot of my music will show, um, have has a lot of notes circled and arrows going to certain notes and from certain notes. And that's all about Hemke trying to teach guidelines, I really would have to call them. You know, like the guidelines that you learn when you're trying to play through the changes in jazz? It's exactly yeah. the same thing. So you like choose some notes in the chords that create sort of a nice line through uh-huh. the chord changes. Guide tones, as we call them in jazz. Guide yeah. tones. Okay, yeah. guide tones. So we would make a... Hemke basically was getting you, you to, to recognize certain structural tones in a musical phrase, um, important notes. You can, I sometimes call them skeleton tones. Yeah. So they're the structure that holds the phrase together. And to recognize that other things are really embellishments or going to that note or coming from that note. So you will really communicate a phrase. Those little arrows and circles are all over the music I studied yeah. with them. And I still teach like that. And it's awesome. That The point of the note is not that note. That note is going somewhere. Yeah. It's either supporting another note or that note is a guy tone leading you yeah. harmonically, melodically somewhere. So he might circle those notes and you as the student, you might just play. He would make you play a phrase that was just those long tones. And you would be told, okay, with just that simple material, it could be like three or four long tones, shape that phrase and say something with those notes. And you would do that. 
And then maybe he'd have you do that again, and he might play everything that you're supposed to play, but you would still, be still playing shake the... that. And then maybe he would play that phrase made up of those three or four long tones, and you would play everything, but you had to play, you had to blow with your air as if you were only playing those long tones. I love that. And make it a great phrase. And I use that all the time. Kind of Schenkerian analysis in performance, exactly. looking at the background and the middle ground of the what's going on here. There you go, yeah, right? I love yeah, that. And if you you've go. ever seen him give, I've seen him give live masterclasses several times. Oh yeah, and you can always see that that giant arm of his, <laughs> like this like this whirlwind motion, meaning we're pushing to the next note. And that's not the that's not the goal. It's not the goal. There's yeah. the goal. Yeah. And don't I, play notes. Play a line. Yeah, and he would always you could just feel him like psychically pulling the students' phrasing to the goal. Yeah, and it was it was remarkable. When he would conduct when you were playing, it's like you were like. Oh my God, I wish I could take him to all my concerts because he would push and pull so that you would do stuff that on your own you would hold back yeah. from, right? Because, you know, this this mantra that exaggeration sounds normal out front. None of us, well, most of us, I certainly don't, do as much as we should expressively because it takes so much more than you think for it to right. come across. Ugh. Absolutely. Um, I forgot who I learned that from. Somebody, oh, I think it was actually um, Clifford Lehman. Oh yeah, uh, saxophonist teaches a university somewhere in the South, South Carolina. South Carolina. Yeah, um, I, I, I had a lesson with him when I was younger, and he um, likened it to stage makeup. Ah, what looks grotesque? Like if you ever go see a play or a theater, you're in the audience and you see they their facial expressions. You walk up on stage and it's horrifying, <laughs> especially if you're like I me. Mean, you have a mild fear of clowns. <laughs> it's horrifying up close, but it's not meant to look good up close. It's to translate to yeah. the audience, and so I, yeah, that's a very very yeah. wise of him to to teach that. Yeah, just just great. What other just secrets great. can we steal from you? You know, one thing that I I had forgotten about that was an important part of being in Fred Hemke's studio was all the social and fun activities. And some years we had more of these than other years. But he did encourage the class to get together and do outings to just create more of a sense of community. So we went apple picking one yeah. year. I think every year he tried to organize a bowling evening and he he was upset if people you know didn't participate in these things because he really felt it was important to get out of the practice room yeah. and do something fun. And he also liked the the class, people in the class, to be friends. Um, it was a competitive class, but it wasn't negatively so, if you know what I mean. It right. was really in a positive sense. And if you had a question, you always felt like you could, could go knock on somebody's door and he encouraged you to go and play something for somebody and, and get somebody's feedback. So he really encouraged the class to help each other. And he felt that everybody could rise up in their level of ability together. And it right. wasn't really a, a cutting, negative, competitive class, at least during any of those eight years when I was there, I didn't feel that. I love that. And it's funny, I've always, a lot of people would, um, not knowing, would say, oh, well, classic saxophonists, those are the snobby ones. Jazz are laid back and friendly. In my experience, it was kind of the opposite. Not necessarily so, I think because right? the, the yeah. classic saxophonists, being kind of the redheaded stepchildren of their <laughs> genre, kind of stuck together and had a camaraderie. And I found might be true. a lot of the jazz was a little bit more of the attitude, less friendly and more. Hmm. And I think they were trying to recreate a culture of... 1940s New York, which doesn't make any sense. The for, kind of cutting. Yeah, which, yeah. you know, in that culture at that time, maybe, but like when white suburban mm. kids from the upper middle class are doing it, it just feels a little cheesy to me. Yeah, um, I think a lot of that stuff maybe is top down, not to come down on, on the teachers, but, you know, Hemke went out of his way to encourage us not to be 
negatively competitive. I love and that. I think if if teachers just take care that that can be okay. One yeah. thing that had to happen every year in the spring was the annual softball game. Yeah. And Hemke always grilled burgers. Aww. And his wife, Nita Hemke, always made brownies. Is she still with us? She is still with Aww. us. Yeah, I'll get to see her. There's going to be a memorial service on uh, June 2nd at Alice Millar Chapel at Northwestern. Okay. Um, I think it's uh, either at 1.30 or 2.30. I can't remember. It's in my calendar. So um, Mark and I are flying out for the oh, memorial great. service, and I'm sure she'll be there. And Fred Jr., who is Fred Hemke's son, um, will be there, and their daughter, Beth. And Fred Jr., of course, also a very fine saxophonist. Yeah. Uh, I think he concentrates more on jazz, but right. he was a terrific classical player, too. Um, but, you know, so that, that annual softball game was a big deal. It wasn't always without incident. I remember one year, um, I think Jan Barry got hit in the face with a softball thrown pretty hard. And, um, yeah, I think Mark and I had to take her to the emergency room. <laughs> she was fine. Oh, well, man. Well, I mean, she wasn't fine. Her, you know, teeth went through her bottom lip, but eventually she was fine. And, of course, she's a great player and, and teacher at, at Georgia State, so... <laughs> Gosh. Yeah, she landed on her yeah. on her feet. Yeah, no, I think that day not. But anyway, yeah, I... <laughs> but eventually, and Jan's awesome. But she, I, I think she wouldn't mind me sharing that story. But yeah, sometimes I have to say it was the guys um, in the in the studio. So yeah, maybe Hemke didn't encourage negative competition in the saxophone playing, but I'm not so sure on the softball field. It was pretty rough sometimes. I found those games terrifying, frankly. Every year I was like, oh, it's going to be humiliating because I'm not very good at hitting a ball, and I'm probably going to get hurt. I never did, thank goodness, but it it was kind of terrifying and humiliating. (laughs) I don't, yeah. And Hemke did the pitching. (laughs) So the, you know, come on, Fanch, come on, you can hit this. Oh, I love that, creating the sense <laughs> of community. Funny. Yeah. I have always said to students that the greatest value of the music degree is not the lessons. You can get lessons for cheaper. It's not you the theory. Sure can. You, can, you can read a theory book. You know, the degrees are incredibly expensive. You can get all that information for way cheaper. You know, yeah. I tell students, you know, if all you want is lessons... Go work for a nonprofit, learn some marketing skills, learn some design skills, learn some outreach skills, yeah. and then pay someone for lessons. Right. You know, it's way cheaper than a college degree. There are a lot more good teachers everywhere now. Oh, so yeah, it's, it's amazing. even easier to do that. In our day, the top teachers all taught at universities yeah. and they wouldn't teach outside now of the Now their disciples are everywhere yeah. teaching at reasonable rates. Yeah. But I always said the greatest value of the degree is the network you make. Oh, the incredible yeah. colleagues that you'll collaborate with and and lean on, and yeah. and that's the greatest value of these degrees. And I love that he yeah. fostered that. He that's did. That's really cool. He absolutely did. Yeah, he really did. It was great. What else yeah. did you learn from? The oh, great geez. Fred you know, Fred Hemke told us all that the most important thing, our most important job in life, was figuring out who we were. What do you mean? Yeah. Right. I still am, I still ponder that one, figuring out who you are, to know who you are, to get to know yourself and who you are in, in your development as an artist, that that was essential to uh-huh. know who you are. So I think that's a lifelong project, but I think just pondering, well, who am I? You know, what do I like to do? And being honest with yourself, what are my strengths? What are my weaknesses? Right. What are the things I do that I shouldn't do? You know, what what aspirations do I have? What do I bring to the table? Right. You know, when I play music, what makes what I have to say different from what you have to say? Not necessarily better or worse, but just different. Right. Well, you usually play the right notes. That's one difference between, <laughs> between us. But other than that... You are too kind. Yeah. 
So, so that's that, just that something you would dis- right? discuss in the lessons. Sometimes. Yeah. Yeah. Sometimes. Well, what do you want to do, Fanch? You know, and and uh, you know, where's this going? Well, what what do you think this composer's saying here? And when he's saying that, you know, I I don't know what the composer's saying there, but so he's asking me what what can I make of what the composer wrote what can i say with it you know so he actually trusted you as an intelligent adult to come to some conclusions and make some decisions yeah and he wanted us to learn how to interpret music and and uh, figure it out without resorting to just listening to somebody else's recordings now back in that day there were not very many good saxophone recordings i mean we had the marcel mule recordings and daniel defaye and there were some recordings i mean i'm talking back in the 80s right so i started college in 82 so he didn't tell us to go listen to recordings he didn't even tell us to listen to his recordings because he didn't want us to go listen to a recording and copy it right he wanted, you know, Jason Wallace's performance to sound like Jason Wallace. He wanted Sue Fancher's recording or performance to sound like Sue Fancher and on and on and on. So he encouraged us to understand what the performance practice of a piece was. Yeah. And he certainly, if we didn't have our own ideas, he certainly would give us his ideas. So his breath marks are written in my music. He breathe here, don't breathe there, that doesn't make any sense. Or if you breathed in a place that he didn't think made any sense, he would ask you why you breathed it there. And yeah. if your answer was, well, I ran out of air, not good enough, yeah. right? Yeah, yeah. <laughs> Why'd you breathe there? Well, you know, I, I was thinking that this note belonged to that phrase because of this, that, or the other thing, and this was the beginning of the next phrase. Oh, well, you didn't convince me. You got to convince me, and you'd play it again, and if you convinced him, you'd be like, whoa, never thought of doing it like that. Okay, fine. I love that. But if you couldn't convince me, like, doesn't make any sense to me. Do you know what the piano has there? And you'd be like, uh, no. Yeah. And he's like, you know, figure out, get your piano part out. He would have it or something. So he'd take five minutes to dig it out of the file. So you needed to do your homework or your lesson would be wasted with him trying to like do what you should have done. Right. He'd play the piano part. He'd be like, oh yeah, that doesn't make any sense in the chord progression. Okay. Whoops. You know, so he would tell you, help you figure out where to breathe. I do that every lesson. Where are you going to breathe? Why'd you breathe there? Why didn't you breathe there? You know, well, here, let's look at the piano part. Let's look at those tools. I love that. that I do know some, not not knocking anyone in particular, but I know some teachers that like, look, my teacher who I idolize breathed here, so let's go ahead and mark these in. Yeah. And it's that kind of, and it's not bad. It's certainly better no, than, than wrong yeah. decisions. Because hopefully no, they thought about it. Yeah, they did think about it. But I, but, <laughs> you know, but it. the Socratic method, which it sounds like Himke was teaching, was he's eliciting it out of there through discussion and allowing you to discover. Yeah. And what a powerful way to teach. And you can, yeah. uh, maybe a, a testament to his pedagogy is when you think of certain schools of playing in jazz and classical, you can tell when a player comes from that way because they sound like their teacher. They pick up the yeah. idiosyncrasies. Yeah. Um, if you think like, what does a Himke student sound like? I don't know. They're all yeah. different. Yeah. Which one are you talking about? They don't have a as much of a Less, sound. Yeah. They're very individual, very mature and thoughtful in their playing, of course. But yeah, you can see that in the let you be you. Yeah. What a powerful testament to a you, lack of ego. Exactly. And he would encourage you to think and figure stuff out and not just take what's there. So sometimes, you know, I, I have this one student and he heard a, a certain interpretation on a recording again i'm not going to name names and so in the lesson i said well why are you doing that triplet suddenly out of tempo slower well i heard it on this recording well does it make sense to you i don't know (laughs) well why are you doing it well because so and so did it and so and so is famous so 
insert eye roll emoji yeah, there. <laughs> so and so is famous, and they Susan has out. gone full Linda Blair and the Exorcist. Her <laughs> eyes have rolled back in her head. Well, and and the thing is, it's a recording, so maybe it's live. So it's with orchestra. So maybe the person had to hold up because the orchestra conductor wasn't quite going to make the downbeat. Yeah. It's it's a pickup beat. It's a beat four before a beat one. Right. So there's all kinds of reasons. In, in the recording that that person might have needed to stretch that triplet. But this idea, and it's a student of mine, I'm just going to have to, like, I don't know, work on this. Um, why would you just do something if it doesn't make any sense? Now, if he had said to me, well, I think it's really cool because it kind of pulls back right before this kind of dramatic, I would have been like, okay, cool. Yeah. But the only reason he was doing it is because he heard it in a recording. That drove me crazy. It still drives me crazy. You can right. tell. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, that, that's not a good enough reason just because somebody famous did it. Think for yourself for crying out loud. Yeah. Somebody famous might have made a mistake. Right. I mean, it can happen, right? They might what? have. I know. Oh, that, if it wasn't a live recording, that might be an edit point. Yeah. Right? Absolutely. Because I hear that in my recording sometimes. I'll go back and be like, wow, I wonder why. Oh, well, that was an edit point. Yeah. <laughs> you know, that happens. There's right. all kinds of stuff that happens. And yeah. especially in live performance. Jeez. You know, don't copy any of those wrong notes in my live recordings, please. <laughs> I am human. What? <laughs> no. So, yeah. Oh, and the thing about keeping notebooks on students. Oh, yeah. We talked about that many episodes ago. Yeah. So, I think think my teacher in high school probably had notes or something, but I, he didn't have very many private students, so uh-huh. he probably just remembered what I was working on. Or it, it didn't matter. I remembered what I was working right. on. But Fred Hemke, you know, he had 20-some students, so he had a little spiral notebook on every single student. Oh, I love that. So you'd walk in, and he'd pull out your notebook, and he knew what you were assigned, so there was no pulling the wool over his eyes. You couldn't right. say, no, no, you just told me my scales could be at 120 this week. No, no, he had 132 written down. Right. <laughs> and he always knew, and he, I, I was thinking this morning, I wonder if I could get my hands on my notebook, and then I decided maybe I wouldn't want to, because I'm sure he made notes of what he was working on, what he was pissed off about, you know? Yeah. What you were not working on hard enough or what he had to remember to remind you. Or could have just been doodles. He could have just been... Could have just been doodles. I mean, in my notes, I often write positive things and negative things, but, you know, I wouldn't want my students to see the private notes that I write either because a lot of times I'm just writing something that's bugging me and it's... I don't want. I wouldn't yeah. want to hurt their feelings, so I say it in a different way. But I have to remind yeah. myself in real shorthand. Yeah, you don't want to see your therapist's notepad. No, yeah, exactly. Yeah, yeah no, when it's not that different, that right? Poo crazy <laughs> music yeah. lessons and therapy. I, I had somebody once say that uh, teaching music composition was pretty much like you know psychotherapy. <laughs> yeah, well, I mean, yeah, there's there's times when as, as private lessons teachers, we can help students through some. And we're well, not, yeah, not qualified to do so necessarily, but well, yeah, right. But yeah, we, we I mean, get to know them in a way that's m- m- closer and more personal than yeah. anybody else they go to school and study with. Yeah, yeah. No, I mean, who else do you get an undivided hour of attention every right. week for years? It's it's a sacred thing, right? And yeah. I always ask the students, "How is it going? What's going on?" You know, stuff like that. And yeah, yeah. Well, I wanted to tell everybody that. Um, I brought a copy of Fred Hemke's CD here to Wally today, and it's called Simple Gifts, and it's one that he put out in, I want to say 2006, something like that, on his own label, ENF Music. And um, one thing that is, well, everything about this CD is stunning. 
um, he had a long, Fred Hemke had a long history of working together with various organists mm -hmm. and commissioning music specifically for saxophone and organ. And so I think the guy's name is Douglas Cleveland is on this album. So there's lots of music with organ, but there's lots of music on this CD that's just solo saxophone. Yeah. And it is Fred Hemke solo saxophone. I mean, Simple Gifts, that very first track, is amazing. I think it's tracks four through six are these Russian folk songs. Yeah. Just solo, just and solo saxophone. And they're Hemke's arrangements. Gorgeous, yeah. yeah. They're, and they're just really simple, straightforward statements of the tunes, really. Yeah. Gorgeous. And if you want to hear just gorgeous lyrical saxophone solo, no accompaniment. I mean, it's so hard to sell that, right? Yeah. Man, it's just great. Just so, great do you know if playing. this is on iTunes? I don't know. We should look. You Let's know, look. You're... Um, Given an, some time, some appropriate yeah. time, it'd be great to maybe speak to his family and, and see, can we get some of these, you know, in a digital format that for oh, sale, at least, you know, yeah. and, and so that the whole world could enjoy. I'll look into that before yeah. next time. There, yeah. He had a great LP back in the 1970s, I think, which had the oh. Carol Husa concerto. Yes. And I, you it's can't great. find it on a bet, but it was fantastic. Isn't the doll on that too, or I on a, is so. that on a different record? He's got several um, vinyl yeah. albums they're that very hard to find, but they're yeah. fantastic. What What was interesting is um, a saxophonist, and we're all guilty of this. Sometimes we miss the point. He had a beautiful tone, a beautiful oh lyric playing, and of course. So, what did people latch on to? The secret of Fred Hemke's tone is the metal classical mouthpiece. And oh, so I know right. I know some yeah. dorks that would chase those vintage Selmer metal classical mouthpieces, thinking <laughs> and like you know. <laughs> He could have put on a garden hose, and he would have sounded amazing. That is a true statement. Yeah, but like it's funny because of him, some of those those vintage Selmer metal classical pieces will sell for tremendous amounts of dollars. Well, more power to the people who can sell them. That's <laughs> and it, even now, wow, right? Yeah, if you find that fun. <laughs> well, when we were when we were studying with him as undergrads, it was essential to play on a Selmer S eighty C star mouthpiece. Was and he pretty dogmatic about that? Yes. Yes. I walked into my first lesson and not only was I unprepared, thank you, did you nameless a, person. You tell um, me you didn't have a rasher mouthpiece on. I did. No, me too. Of course I, I did. did too in my first well, lesson. Of course I had a yeah. rasher mouthpiece. I came from Western New York rasher land and my, my teacher was a rasher student. Hey, I was playing on a rasher mouthpiece in the cassette tape that he accepted me to come study yeah. with him on. So it couldn't have been that bad, right? I, I came in for that first lesson. He's like, what is that mouthpiece? Yeah. I'm like... I'm terrified of this guy already, right? And I'm like, is this a Sigurd Rasher mouthpiece? It's the mouthpiece my high school teacher told me to play. Oh, why do you play on it? Uh, because it's got a really dark sound. Oh, is that what you think? What makes you think it's dark? Oh, I don't know. <laughs> that I'm sounds like, terrifying. terrifying. Yeah, so he could be terrifying. Yeah. I... I um, learned the Rasher style. My teacher was a Rasher oh, teacher yeah. in high school, and I did not go to school that was the Rasher style. And my professor later told me he accepted me and offered me a scholarship to come yeah. study at the well, University of Georgia. Well, you were a great player, yeah. But um, that mouthpiece and on that Vince horn, the intonation was so wonky. Right. Years later, over a couple beers, he told me, and I remember to this day, I played um, the Iberican Concerto in high school. Oh, yeah. And, um, yeah. and he was, I Hardcore. took, no one told me it was hard, so I just learned it. Yeah, that's the key. And that, that was is the key, key. just the teacher, like you were saying. The teacher should not yeah. ever tell he us. He just said, Wally, why don't you go ahead and learn this? So I learned the Iberican Concerto. Yeah. I'll never forget um, graduate students. And this was the early 90s, so the yeah. standards were different back then. And I remember graduate students in my audition day, 
um, they're auditioning too. We're like, oh, what are you playing? I was like, oh, the this Ibert concerto. And they're like, what? And, and so I didn't know it's hard. So anyway, so he was impressed with my work ethic. But years yeah. later, over a couple of years, he told me, Wally, and during that audition, he stopped <laughs> at one point. And he said, he said, um, Wally, have you and your teacher changed any notes? He was wondering if there's like a rasher school oh. altered edition. <laughs> and I, 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 I said, no, Dr. Fisher, no, Dr. Fisher. I, I'm sure I'm sure I just missed a note. Um, was it because of the tuning? It, the intonation was so off it, <laughs> that oh, wow. I didn't know the tune. So some of the notes, they were far enough oh, off, yeah. I was trying to lift them to the wrong note. Because I gotcha. Yeah. I didn't know what it was supposed to sound like. Right. And so my intonation was so bad that he was wondering, is like, is he trying to hit a different note? But he could see it was equipment failure. Yeah, sure. Uh, not you. And yeah, that you could yeah, play. I mean, it, if you could play the Iberic Concerto as a as a senior in high school back in that day, oh my back God. In the now 90s, everybody now can. Now everyone yeah. can. But, yeah. Middle but school I mean, students. That was a big deal. Yeah, back it was back then. before yeah. CDs. So like you couldn't just, you know. Right. Uh, yeah, but I'll never forget that. My rasher mouthpiece. And, yeah. and I was trying a, that rasher mouthpiece on a horn that it just did not work for. Right. Um, yeah. Well, and, you know, my first lesson, he basically told me, you're not coming back for your second lesson with that mouthpiece. Yeah. And my lesson partner at the time, Cynthia. Cynthia Marr, I can't remember, oh gosh, what was her maiden name, but Cynthia, I think Cynthia was my lesson partner, and she had a C double star that she wasn't using. Well, that's twice as good. It's a well, double star. it's got two stars. Two stars, yeah. twice as good. So she made me a really good price, and I bought that mouthpiece basically on the spot and played on that, and I never played on that rasher mouthpiece again because yeah. I wasn't going to be allowed to. So he was hardcore. You would let me play on the double star, which was probably... I'm a little less shocking for me than going straight to a right. C star. And then eventually I did go to a go yeah. to a C, a C star, you know, and played on that for a very long time until I took the took the plunge and changed to the optimum line of Van Doren. But right. oh my gosh. But yeah, Hemke was he was not flexible about that. <laughs> you know, um, so one of a funny story that I maybe shared with you or maybe didn't, um, about the Harbison piece San Antonio. Yeah. So when I was a grad student, that was a piece I that was pretty new then. That was in the, 90s, in the 90s, late 90s, yeah. yeah. Um, and I took that in for a lesson, and he didn't like that piece. And I didn't know that when I took it in. But apparently he was upset that Harbison was paid so much money it was a commission this, consortium. Yeah, yeah, which he wasn't upset about that, but he was upset that he took all that money from classical saxophone players and then wrote what was essentially a pop music piece or a jazz music piece. Which is a little bit of a stretch, but he yeah. felt like that he had spent his whole career trying to get the saxophone taken seriously as a classical instrument, right. and this piece he felt, you know, set us back a generation. Yeah, I, I got to admit, I hate that piece. I like the piece. Do you? I do, and uh, I have played uh, it a lot. Uh, I know. Yeah, 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 yeah. yeah. But, whenever, whenever you hear that melody, uh, do, do, do. All I can think is the Bill Cosby. Dad is great. <laughs> he gives us chocolate cake. That's all I can think of. That is hilarious. Well, it's unnecessarily obnoxious at the end of that first yeah. movement with all that altissimo, and I've got you know opinions about how that should be played that we can get into another time maybe. But um, there are a couple places in the second and third movement where I added some scoops and some kind of jazz style vibrato, and he stopped me. And Hemke said, why did you do that? And I said, well, because of this style of music, I just, I can't imagine not doing that. He said, fair enough. Yeah. And he's like, yeah, but that was kind of part of what bugged him about the piece. But he thought, if you're going to play it, that's the way you should play it. You should go ahead and add some scoops and whatever. Yeah. Know, with good taste, hopefully. But, you know, 
I think the piece is, I think the piece is okay. I'm not sure that the form of the three movements is super satisfying by the end of the third movement. It's not like you bring down the house or anything like yeah, that. It sort yeah. of just goes away, but you know, yeah. Interesting. That was an interesting story. And you know, uh, uh, John Anthony Lennon's piece, Eterna, yeah, yeah. Um, which has become a big favorite in my repertoire, was brand new at that time when I was doing grad work. And Hemke did what most teachers with grad students do. He just passed it on to a grad student. He just happened to give me that piece. Hey, this piece just showed up in the mail. Go learn it. Oh, cool. Yeah. yeah. So that's how I got to know that piece, you know, hot that, off the presses. Yeah. That is a cool piece of music. Yeah, I, it is I like really that very cool. much. Yeah. Well, what a cool, oh, what a cool yeah. t- testament. We should all be so lucky that, well, I mean, not only teaching 50 years at the you know, oh a great university, yeah. but that we have students out there that have such vivid memories and such lessons oh, learned. Yeah. And imagine over the coming weeks, you'll have more lessons to share with us and yeah. more memories. Just think of his legacy. So every student who studied with him, but now every student who has studied with a student of his, Yeah, right? You're part of that legacy. That's true. It's just amazing. I mean, Wow. Yeah. You know, so great life. Would have been great to have him around for another decade or more. Yeah. But we're so blessed for having had this time with him. Yeah. Holy cow. I'm so glad you you got to share with us and we get to firsthand account from someone that studied with him for so long. Well, That's thank really you special. so much for letting me go on and on and Yeah. And, uh, no, share I mean it was really special and, and he affected yeah. a lot of people very deeply. Yeah. Um, yeah, and what a cool opportunity we get to hear some of these. And I'm yeah. sure in the coming weeks we'll hear more stories. Oh, sure. As things, as your memory gets jogged, and you yeah. get to think more fondly. Of uh, it. Just everybody who met him will tell you what a presence in a room. Even oh, you know that. <laughs> Amazing. Well, let's all go and live our lives in that kind of way. That Amen think like, what that. are we giving to our students that they will give to the world, even yeah. after we're gone. There you go. Right on. Yeah, Sue. Great talking to you. Great talking to all you, right. to Wally. Bye, everyone. Have a great day. 